David Kilcullen is a soldier and a scholar. A former Australian Army officer, he served as a top counterinsurgency advisor in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He also has worked in Pakistan, the Horn of Africa, and Southeast Asia. He's just published a new book on the threats now facing America and the West, and the options we need to consider if free nations are, as he puts it, to evolve and survive for the long twilight struggle ahead. He's going to talk about these and related issues today with me and with you here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. David Kilcullen, you, you call your new book The Dragons and the Snakes, so just start by telling us who these creatures are. Yeah, well, I actually can't claim you know, authorship of that uh, metaphor, that was Jim Woolsey, who was President Clinton's first CIA director. And when he was doing his confirmation hearing in February of 1993, he was asked about the threat after the end of the Cold War. And he said, we've slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union, but now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes. And in many ways, the dragon was easier to keep track of. And right. What I argue in the book is that for a, almost exactly a 10-year period from when Woolsey gave his testimony in February of 93 until we invaded Iraq in March of 2003, we lived in what I call a Woolseyan security environment, right, where we worried about the snakes. We worried about weak states, failing states, non-state actors like terrorists and so on, and that was our primary focus. And then after 2003 – we narrowed that focus to just one snake, right? International Islamic extremist terrorism. And my argument in the book is that we were kind of the apex predator in uh, a combat ecosystem and everybody else, after we kind of showed them how not to fight the United States in 1991, began to evolve and adapt. And under normal circumstances, we would have reacted to that, but we were so busy focusing on, for good reasons, right? On Afghanistan and Iraq and terrorism that we created space for a lot of potential adversaries to evolve and adapt in a way that I sort of describe in the book. You know, I should mention Jim Woolsey was for some years FDD's chairman. Absolutely. We know him very well. I yeah. also recall him saying that what we lacked prior to 9-11 was not so much intelligence as imagination. He's in, yeah. in retrospect, how could we fail to imagine terrorists yeah. hijacking passenger jets and turning them into missiles. How could we yeah. not imagine terrorists trained as pilots sacrificing their lives or as they would call it, um, becoming martyrs mm -hmm. uh, in order to damage um, America? That mm -hmm. We should have understood that, but we didn't have a clear yeah. idea of the ideologies and, and groups that, that were out there. Yeah, and in fact, I'd encourage people if they have a chance to go and see Woolsey's testimony, which is available online on the Senate website, and it's extraordinarily prescient, right? I mean, it's hard to remember reading it that he's talking in only 
you know, 15 months after the fall of the Soviet Union. And he basically lays out this ex extremely accurate prediction of what life's going to be like in the 1990s and early 2000s. And, and that went against the conventional thinking because around that time, we had Francis Fukuyama, a very respected mm. scholar, mm. and his thesis about the end of history and mm -hmm. what the end of history meant, of course, as he perceived it is, at this point, it's obvious that liberal democratic systems of government that's the only logical thing. We're yeah. all going to go in that direction. There was a sense, a very strong sense, and actually FDD was the result of this, uh, of, of not believing the conventional wisdom that following the collapse of the Berlin Wall, mm. the implosion of the Soviet Union, we no longer had enemies. We could take a peace dividend, uh, a holiday from history. There were, there, we had no dangers in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, the people who, 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 who I met with and who created this organization said, we don't think this is true. Yeah. We think we got a lot of enemies. We just don't understand who they are and what and they're think, up to. I think you guys certainly turned out to be right. Can I just give us a, devil, a, a point in favor of, of Frank Fukuyama's book though? Sure. I do think it's a misunderstood book. Right? Uh -huh. People forget that there's actually a question mark, right? At mm. the end of, end of the end of history. And, He's, I actually discuss it in the book. I think he's making somewhat of a similar point to what I believe Ross Douthat is making with his new book on uh, stagnation. Hmm. Uh, Fukuyama is saying, okay, let's assume that it is the end of history. Right? Let's hmm. assume that we are now hmm. the dominant player. Where do we go to from here? And if we are the top of the tree, uh, we have no fresh worlds to conquer, as it were, right? right? The risk is that we all sort of sink back into stagnation and we worry more about, you know, pornography and football and, you know, uh, Twitter and we don't, you know, all these things didn't, you know, really exist. Right. Then. And, and we've lost our sort of ability to focus on a, a, a broader goal, right? And I think Ross is making a similar point in his book that just came out. I haven't had a chance to read it in detail yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, I think that's the point that Fukuyama would make now if he was in this uh, in this room with us. But it's certainly true that a lot of people took the book in a different way, yeah. right? And said, "Look, clearly we've arrived where the dominant player." Right. I quote uh, Madeleine Albright in the book, uh, probably the most incredible statement of American hubris that I was able to find was, you know, in 1999, talking to Matt Lauer during the war against uh, Milosevic in Kosovo, saying. If we have to use violence, it's because we're the United States. We stand taller. We see further than everybody else. You know, sort of this idea that the U.S. props up the global system with its military might. And I guess one of the points I'm making in the book is the last 20 years of conflict suggests that that model, if it ever did work, isn't really working anymore. Yeah. I want to come back to this because if the U.S. isn't the one who takes that responsibility, the question is, who does? Mm -hmm. But let me. But before that, <laughs> I, I don't want to get too far ahead. Yeah. Let's go to the subtitle of your book, which mm -hmm. also, which is how the rest learn to fight the West. Mm. And this is an allusion, I think, to the. I'm pretty sure to the theory promulgated by Farid Zakaria, mm -hmm. TV and print uh, yeah. commentator, yeah, yeah. Uh, starting around 2008. And he argued that what we were witnessing was the rise of the West, meaning other countries around the world. And that we're seeing not so much anti-Americanism as post-Americanism um, and that this was a good thing. He told his audience and his readers that if the world that's being created has more power centers, nearly all are invested in order, stability, and progress. He added, this is one of the most thrilling stories in history. He sure got that wrong, didn't he? 
Well, I, I actually quote Fareed in, in the, the final chapter of the book, and I contrast him with Johnny Goldberg, right, who has uh, a great book, The Suicide here. of the West, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Fareed's point of view, I always thought sounded pretty optimistic even back in 2008, and he makes the point that it's not really about the decline of the West, it's about the rise of the rest, right? Um, and, well, maybe it's about the rise of the rest and also the decline of the West. Um, and Jonah, in the beginning of his book, says, he actually quotes, uh, I think it's Arnold Toynbee about, you know, no, I'm sorry, he quotes, he quotes, um, Charles Crownhammer. Oh, huh. And right. says, you know, decline is a choice. Right. Right. Whereas Fareed's coming from a different, what we call so social cycle theory, uh, found, foundational view, which is that all civilizations eventually decline. And to the extent that the U.S. is some form of global imperium, that we also will inevitably decline, and we need to think about what comes next. Um, and I think there are two very different philosophies there, right, between sort of Krauthammer view and the and the Arnold Toynbee view. Okay, I'm getting ahead of where I want to be, but I, but we can't help <laughs> Sorry, it. So yeah. That's okay. Yeah. We're going to do. We're going to. So <laughs> sure, no question, all empires decline in time, but it can be in a hundred years, three hundred years, or a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And the 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 Overly optimistic part is that the rise of the rest, we're going to see all these countries, governments, nations dedicated to stability and taking on these very productive and good roles. And we're mm. not seeing that. No, not not seeing China, that. not no. Russia, not no. of the, or not certainly not the Islamic Republic of Iran. In fact, I think you'd be hard pressed around the world to say which countries are rising, exerting power, and doing it towards good ends. And meanwhile, I would argue, you can disagree with me a lot, the, our European friends, for the most part, are saying this is not our job. We, we do diplomacy. Yeah. We don't do a lot of kinetics. There are some exceptions. Australia is an exception. Mm -hmm. The Brits, the French, to some exception. The Germans, mm -hmm. they don't want to write a check and they don't want to send a tank into battle or even have one ready for battle. So we're not seeing the rise of the rest that should be thrilling, as Farid Zakari would say. We're seeing the rise of a lot of forces that are destabilizing, chaotic, brutal, oppressive. I think I just yeah. think that's clear. Well, I think when you – so I, I don't make a choice between the sort of two points of view in the in the book, but what I suggest is that let's assume for a minute that Fareed is correct, right? Let's assume that, that President Obama's idea was correct, right, that we will eventually decline and we should manage that decline – that if we try to avoid it, we're just going to hasten it potentially. And I guess the best thing you could say about the President Obama view was, was that he was going for a soft landing, right? Um, well, that, as I make the point in the book, that only works if there's a successor power that has two key characteristics. One, it's strong enough to actually take over. And two, it's friendly enough that we wouldn't be seriously suffering under those circumstances. And I survey the landscape and I make come to the same point that you've just okay. made, which is there isn't one, right? I mean, it's not China, right? Nope. The Russians don't want to and they couldn't anyway, right? They have an economy the size of Greece. If you were to remove the nuclear weapons, you're looking at a medium-sized European power. Already the EU spends more than them on defense collectively, right? So they, they're not, they don't want to do it anyway and they're not going to do it. The EU is too disunified as, and as you made the point, they don't, they don't think in that way, uh, you know, to, to do that. And China, I actually don't think is strong enough. And I also don't think is friendly enough. So I actually say we've got three options, right? We can, you know, manage decline, right? Yep. yep. And I sort of rule that out because whether you want to or not, it's probably hard to see how that would work. 
I talk about doubling down mm -hmm. and I say, look, unfortunately, if everybody else has now adapted to the point where their model invalidates ours, doing more of what we're already doing is probably not going to work. We need to think of different stuff as just one datum point. The Chinese have invented an entire new category of missile systems, anti-shipping ballistic missiles that can knock out an aircraft carrier up to 2,500 miles away on the move at sea. So if that's the case, buying more aircraft carriers isn't going to help, right? We have to think of new stuff. So then I take, again, drawing on something you just said, I take the idea of a sort of Byzantine approach. We, um, we think of the Byzantines as different from the Romans. Byzantines always thought of themselves as Romans. Right, the Eastern Roman Empire. Yeah, exactly. And, the, and Rome itself collapsed in the 4th century, but Byzantium survived for another 1,100 years, right, until the 29th of May, 1453, when the Ottomans captured Constantinople. The Ottoman Empire and Caliphate. Let's right. just point that out. Absolutely, right, indeed. And so that, which is a great example of uh, an imperial transition that didn't go so well for the people who got, you know, transitioned out, right? So, but that 1100 years to me is interesting. And I asked the question in the book, how did they get another mm -hmm. millennium plus? Mm -hmm. uh, and it was things like selectively learning from their adversaries, adopting a really strong focus on domestic cohesion and stability, focusing on efficient civil administration as well as military activity. And then this kind of light footprint, agile way of not trying to occupy lots of places and hold them like the ancient Romans had, but to be much more flexible in the way they dealt with a wider variety of adversaries. I actually don't come down on which you know method to adopt in the book. You I, sort of recommend the Byzantine well, uh, approach rather than which uh, rather than uh, the doubling down or embracing the suck is the other embracing, thing. Embracing, yeah, yeah right. embracing the to suck use a, or, use a or, military or, slang. Or, I mean, doubling down would mean let's let's take on all our enemies and destroy them all. Yes, yeah. and, and do more, spend more, do more in what we're doing. Right, now. and that yeah. may be a, a bridge too far. And embracing the suck is essentially saying. Oh well, if the yeah, empire is going to die, or, yeah, let's let's, right. let's celebrate that somehow and pretend that everybody else out there is going to do a good job. I mean, part of this is just historically, you know, in in the 1920s, the British Empire was the greatest empire in the world, mm -hmm. maybe the greatest the empire the world ever seen. Who mm -hmm. knew? Who who knows? A generation later, by the 1940s. Britain had was exhausted and could not become be a, 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 the, the major global power, but it could say to the United States, "You take over, okay? Can yeah, you do this?" Yeah. And we said, "Okay, we'll 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 shoulder the burden here." Yeah, yeah. And I think this is what we're getting at here. If the U.S. is now exhausted, if we're war weary, if we don't want to shoulder the burden of leadership and all of all that. To whom can we turn over this responsibility? Right. And there right. is, and this, there are those that are strong, but they're not good. There are those that are good, but they're not strong. We can't, we can't quite do that. And this is not entirely yeah. understood. Now, if you embrace the Byzantine strategy, mm -hmm. uh, as you say, talk a little bit about what that means. For example, what we're doing. Well, two things. Is it, in a, in a sense, a, a, a sort of Cold War 2.0 that we're talking about fighting? In other words, what was the Cold War? Mm. It was a it was a way of saying, okay, we fought World War II to prevent totalitarians, German Nazis, Japanese imperialists from dominating the globe. At the end of that war, we had the problem that uh, other totalitarians, Soviet communists, they wanted to dominate the globe. What were our choices? We could go into another hot war, but we were pretty tired after World War II. We could let them prevail wherever they wanted, or we could 
say, let's have a Cold War, let's use proxies, let's contain them, let's see if in a few generations, maybe they collapse, which in fact they did. That was, are we looking at it, is, is what you're saying the Byzantine solution in essentially Cold War 2.1? Well, I'm, a, I'm opposed to the, well, let me, let, me, <laughs> let me make one philosophical point. I don't recommend a solution. And the reason that I don't do that is I'm a professional soldier, right? And I don't think it's the role of the military to tell the American people and American elected officials what the future should be. In fact, I think one of the problems in the way we think about this is we look for military technocratic solutions when actually what we need is a societal conversation about resiliency and about- Right. You know, right. And it's not, a, I, I don't think military officers should be sort of dictating the, the answer, right? And let me um, I, I, when I've read your book and read it pretty carefully, I think if I understand you correctly, you're trying to spark a more informed debate. It's clear to a reader that the least bad alternative you see is this Byzantine yeah, strategy, yeah, which means that we don't let our enemies just do whatever they right, want. Right. That it's, it's not full on uh, isolationism. Mm -hmm. it, and there right. are those who say, who cares what happens to Africa? Who cares what happens in the Indo-Pacific? Who cares what happens in Europe? It's really not our problem. Yeah, it's indeed. there. And you're not in favor of, of no, that. No, I mean, if I may int interject Leon Trotsky into this conversation, right? Uh, <laughs> we were hoping to have yeah, him yeah, soon, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you, yeah, right? right? So it might seem very convenient to just ignore all that stuff, but it's not something that we can ignore. Mm -hmm. Um I'm a little wary of using the term Cold War 2.0 only because a lot of people are using that now. And what they mean is what I mean by doubling down, right? Mm. They, they mean mm. doing more conventionally and trying to confront um, adversaries with more spending, more effort, that kind of thing. And I think that particularly in the China case, China has already figured out ways to confront the United States that it's very difficult for a military solution to address. And also, I think that our, our historical memory of the Cold War, in retrospect, it seems a lot neater and less contentious mm -hmm. than it actually was at the time, right? So to look at specific elements of what a Byzantine strategy might involve, one is selectively learning from, from adversaries, right? Now, there are many things that our adversaries do that we would never in a million years countenance doing ourselves for moral or ethical reasons. But actually, there's a lot of other stuff they do that's it's not neither good nor bad morally, but is in fact um, something that we could learn from. Give an example. So a lot of our adversaries have gone modular, small footprint, large numbers of low-cost platforms that have interchangeable roles rather than hugely expensive, exquisite things that are designed to do just one thing. Um, a lot of our adversaries have focused a lot on – the intersection between kinetic operations and cyber. So we tend to think of cyber as being different from kinetic, whereas the Russians, the Chinese, mm -hmm. uh, most of our other adversaries look in the overlap, the sort of gray zone between the two. Um, I think we need one of the things the Byzantines did was they had a, a lock on certain niche technologies. One was a thing they called, the, their adversaries called Greek fire that seems to have been some kind of fire weapon they used in both naval and ground engagements. Or well, the equivalent today would be nuclear weapons, but probably we'd have to think about them in a slightly different fashion. And then you've got this kind of light, agile approach forward. So not very large armies occupying entire provinces, which was the 
Western Roman way that had already failed by the fourth century, but agile small forces with lots of local allies, probably more of a aviation and special operations centric approach for us. And then you sort of hinted on, on, the, on this, and I think it's a good point. What, you know, Walton Mearsheimer call offshore balancing, mm-hmm. right? And I think that is absolutely or should absolutely be part of how we think about this, working with allies who have a very strong interest in their own region, uh, not doing things that our allies can do, but enabling them to, you know, carry the burden in their, in their own environment and working with them to make that burden bearable. For example, which allies do we have that are capable that we could help do? Israel would like to yeah, say well, be I one. Yeah, well, I think Israel is an interesting question. And it's, it's, it's funny, right? I think if you look at President Trump's positions on the Middle East since he took office, he is effectively putting forward an offshore balancing strategy, right? Where we've got the Saudis, the Israelis, the right. Emiratis, Jordanians, other allies in the region who like would die rather than admit publicly that they're working together, but are in fact in a de facto alliance to stabilize the Middle East against Iran. And the US has stepped back from occupying Iraq, you know, trying to and and is working through this motivated collection of of local partners. Now, you know, it's a bit odd to have be having this conversation and putting Israel in the same boat as you know the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and I'm not, and, any, and I'm not likening no. them, but they they are sort of working. working They're together. working together, yeah. just under um, the surface. I think we all, I think we know that at this point. And ironically, I think if you sat down with President Trump, yeah, and you said, "Mr. President, you're running a very nuanced and sophisticated, you know, off-, he'd be like, "What? What are you talking about?" Right? I mean, I think it's I think it's instinctive, so, right. right? Which in some ways makes it better. I mean, I, when I think about the confrontation that we just have been having with the Iranians. I see an incredibly nuanced foreign policy approach by the president. I'm not sure he could articulate that in mm-hmm. a way that would go down well in the common room at Harvard, right? But as a matter of praxis, to use another another uh, Soviet era term, uh, it's pretty sophisticated. Two things. One is I just feel I want to share this with you. I recently was speaking with a, a Saudi minister, uh-huh. and he was essentially complaining that after the year, the Islamic Republic of Iran knocked out a lot of their oil production mm-hmm. facilities, the U.S. did not take steps to respond mm-hmm. aggressively to that. Mm-hmm. And I said, maybe you should think about doing that yourself. Right. Well, you that- have weapons that you can buy. You can buy more. I know Trump will sell them to you. It's just a matter of you using them rather than us. Yeah. What do you think about that? He did not like that question. Right. Well, indeed. And I think the there is a long tradition in Europe and in the Middle East of allies – relying very heavily on the United States to do the heavy lifting heavy lifting. And you know, presidents going back to President Carter have been trying to get the Europeans, for example, to do more. President Trump, you know, treads heavily, but he's actually let you know, for whatever reason, uh, people have started to do more and spend more. In the case of the Middle East, uh, you know, I, I I've been struck by the I don't know if shallowness is the right word, but the the sort of um uh, template that that commentators are using to describe what just happened with the Iranians, and it's kind of escalating toward the brink of war, and then stepping back, kind of a brinkmanship framing. Mm-hmm. I don't actually see it that way. Mm. Firstly, you know, I served in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I served a lot in the Middle East before that. I don't think we're stepping towards the brink of war with Iran. I think we've been in a war with Iran since the eighties. Uh, the Iranians certainly think that, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think uh, you know. It's a question of what that what form that war takes, right? And I think 
the Iranians have been suffering incredibly from economic sanctions. They keep trying to change the frame of the confrontation from economic to asymmetric warfare. They've been doing that since they shot the drone down in June last mm -hmm. year, the oil tanker attacks, a series of attacks on uh, U.S. personnel in Iraq. These are all attempts to get out of the economic box mm -hmm. into the asymmetric warfare box. And it's like President Trump keeps picking them up by the scruff of the neck and dropping them back into the economic box and saying, I'm not actually going to go to where you want to confront me. I'm going to confront you where I'm strong mm. in economics rather than where you guys think you're strong in asymmetric warfare. And I think interpreting it through the lens of uh, well, Trump hatred in terms of the U.S. media, but even even strategists interpreting it through the lens of vertical escalation and de-escalation is misinterpreting it. This is a question about what the terms of an existing conflict are going to be. Are they going to primarily be economic or primarily be asymmetric warfare? And would you agree that the killing of Qasem Soleimani, who was the head of the Quds Force, the mm -hmm. expeditionary force, mm -hmm. the, the point of the spear of uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, in Iraq, this was a way, among other things, of saying to, the, to Iran's rulers, we have a lot of military strength. You may think we won't use it against you because we haven't in the past, yeah. maybe when we should have, like when you were killing hundreds of our people during the Iraq war yeah. using IEDs. Um, don't be so sure with me that I won't use the strength I have against you. Um, this is a, yeah. this is a dem this is a demonstration to use the phrase in your book, demonstration effect. I think right. it, it yeah, applies that's here. Right. Yeah, it does. Well, I think, and I, of course, academic publishing schedules being what they are. Uh, I finished <laughs> writing the book, you know, <laughs> about a year ago. So it, none of this is in the book, but, um, yeah, look, I, I think there are so many interesting things in the Qasem Soleimani hit. Um, on the one hand, it's this issue of, as you just raised, don't confuse restraint with weakness, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Which I think is a strong message that the Iranians, I suspect, have now gotten. Um, I think people have been a little bit overly optimistic about the Iranian response. I don't think we've actually seen the Iranian response yet. <clears throat> and when it comes, I think it's going to be asymmetric and it probably won't be in the Middle East. It'll be in Latin America or Europe or even in the United States. Uh, it won't necessarily be some kind of direct confrontation. Um, and we've seen – we have a history of this. We saw yeah. the attack in the 1980s in Argentina, right, ag right against uh, the Jewish uh, communal yeah, organization, yeah. EMEA. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think – so that's one possibility. The other thing is I think if the Iranians hadn't accidentally shot down their own airliner and mm. then got mm. caught lying about it mm. and had this massive uh, popular backlash against the regime as a result – and then had to deal with coronavirus a few weeks later, I think we would have seen a different response. I think it's a sort of, uh, it's a postponed response rather than a, a current one. The other thing that I think is interesting is, and I actually contrast President Trump's response to Soleimani with President Obama's response on the red line in August of 2013 in Syria, where people may remember that we'd articulated a red line and then didn't follow through on that. Trump doesn't really do red lines, right? I mean, if you're going to be mercurial and spontaneous and <laughs> what is it, a stable genius, right? <laughs> then it, red lines don't really fit. And I, as I point out in the Russia chapter, when we create red lines, we make ourselves extremely predictable in terms of our political decision making. So an adversary can walk right up to the line and figure out how to sort of surf that edge of an American response. And in the Russia chapter, I go into some detail about how the Russians have basically created a whole new approach based on doing that. 
In the case of, uh, of the Soleimani attack, I thought it was extre- extremely interesting that even the Pentagon apparently was surprised by the president taking the option to kill Soleimani, which should teach people in the Pentagon a lesson, I think, right? I mean, when I worked there, we always had this kind of Goldilocks thing where you offer three options to the policymaker, you know, too hot, too cold, just right. <laughs> yeah. And Trump goes, I'm taking the hot one. Right? And I was like, what? You're gonna... It's like, well, if you don't want the president to kill the guy, don't put that option in your list of options. You know, I think that's a pretty important lesson here. But it's also a lesson to the Iranians, right, which is this president and possibly no future president is going to state a red line and then make themselves so predictable that an adversary can maneuver around. You're going to have to say, hmm, you know, what's the what's the chances that President Trump wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and decides to do, you know, X, Y, Z? And am I willing to take that chance? Yeah. What we're doing in Syria mm. right now, mm-hmm. small force, probably under uh, a thousand troops, yeah. all highly skilled, very elite, special, also air power uh, to, to support the combat troops. Um, a force multiplier for something like 70,000 Kurds and Arabs mm-hmm. um, who are fighting the Islamic Republic, uh, who are fighting ISIS, mm-hmm. but also keeping both Russia and the Islamic Republic of Iran at bay. Mm-hmm. Is that, in your view, a reasonable component of a Byzantine strategy? Yeah, at the tactical level, that's right. It has to fit within a broader strategy, <clears throat> like tactics can't substitute for strategy. But if you look at our successes in the 21st century, in many cases, you see similar components. You see a very small elite, I hate that word, but a sort of specialized footprint forward of CIA special operators, uh, JTACs, the guys who control the airstrikes, you know, right. those kinds of capabilities, uh, aid workers, you know, right. forward. You have heavy air power capability, uh, signals intelligence, ISR, all that, uh, sorry, in, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capability, right, over the top. But then, really importantly, you've got a really capable and motivated local partner. Mm-hmm. So the example I use in the book is, um, you know, we put the first CIA team into Afghanistan about three and a half weeks after 9-11. Seven and a half weeks later, the Taliban regime had ceased to exist, right? With 110 CIA officers and about 300 special forces and a brigade of Marines, but also with 50,000 Afghans fighting with us against the Taliban. That's the critical element, mm-hmm. that plus, plus air support. Um, and there's a couple of implications of that. One is you can't betray your local ally and think that that's going to continue to be a viable model, right? So, you know, we, we did it in Syria for reasons that we can unpack. Uh, but I think uh, part of it is recognizing that it's not just our special forces and B-52s. It's the local partner that's critical here, and mm-hmm. we've got to mm-hmm. got to think about that. I, but this also gets back to what you were saying. I don't. Th- I think the President Trump is at best ambivalent about what's going on in Syria, rather than seeing it as, in a way, the Goldilocks solution of neither a hundred thousand troops nor bugging out and letting the enemy take over. He's not sure. He, he's been convinced that to to keep that up, but I don't think he quite believes that this is a this is a tactic we should be using yeah and you see the same thing and and i want to get into afghanistan a little bit and there are a bunch of questions i have there but in particular my questions are um why we haven't done better in afghanistan after we managed to unseat the taliban Mm -hmm. 
Um, whether we should be looking at it the way people do now as, oh, we're 18, 19 years into our longest war – when you have 13,000 troops going down to 8,600, that's mm -hmm. not a war fighting mm -hmm. uh, military. Yeah. That's an advise and assist mission for the locals, which may be keeping the Taliban successfully out of Kabul and out of the 34 provincial capitals, which is a reasonable mission. It's yeah. not a war fighting mission. It's not pursuing victory. And, and it may be doing exactly what you say, having a footprint there. And that gets to the question I don't think the president think would like – I think the president would like to bring everybody out of Af Afghanistan. I'm not sure he's going to do it in an election year for various reasons. But we're on track to, theoretically to do that mm -hmm. in uh, 2021. Mm -hmm. If you do that, do you not – and maybe you don't – do you not lose an important footprint, a forward operating position – from which you can fight not just Taliban, but ISIS in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda, and many others. Or can you do it offshore? You don't need to have uh, even a, a small number of elite troops in a place yeah. like that. So I've opened up a lot of doors yeah, for you. Yeah, no, that's right. Let me – well, I think there's two themes here. One is Afghanistan. The other one is the president. Let me deal with the president <laughs> first. When in, in early October last year, the president said suddenly in a phone call with you know, President Erdogan of Turkey, we're going to pull out of – of Syria, we're doing it right now. People freaked out, including in the Pentagon. And I would just, again, not, not that I want to critique the Pentagon, you know, there's a lot of good friends of mine, but it's astounding to me that people were caught by surprise by that. I no. mean, Brett McGurk- He'd said was, it a year earlier, yeah, if you remember. Brett McGurk, who's, who's the, who was the special envoy yeah. for uh, the counter-ISIL coalition, had quit in December, you know, 10 months earlier. As had James Mattis, Secretary of Defense. Mattis, right, over, over that very Say, issue. Over the very issue. I don't issue. know how you can then go, when the president comes back to you 10 months later and goes, hey, what are you still doing there? Didn't I tell you guys to leave 10 months ago? And you go, what? Shit, you really mean that? You know, you really want us to leave? Uh, you know, well, maybe think about that. And if they'd have start, started thinking about it a little earlier and said, let's use some of the leverage we have now to set the Kurds up to gain some concessions from Assad to think about how the Turks respond here, uh, that, then that could have been a much less messy exit, right? And mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. that's not the fault necessarily of the president. It's certainly not the fault of people on the ground. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is about translating the intent from the political level into tactical action. And, you know, one of the themes in the book is that we are really, really good at achieving battlefield outcomes, yeah. we suck at translating battlefield outcomes into political outcomes, right? right? That's that's the area where we really struggle. And I think Afghanistan fits into that theme, yeah. right? I mean, in 2001, we achieved a stunning victory, stunning to us, no less than to the Taliban and everybody else. And then we sort of step back, right? And Americans have a tendency to accept the blame for stuff that isn't actually their fault. So let me just remind you, as someone who was in the Australian military at the time, that it wasn't the U.S. that decided to do all this extremely um, ambitious Eurocentric nation building in Afghanistan. That was the Bonn Conference, which was UN-led. Mm -hmm. The only uh, U.S. representative there was um, Jim Dobbins, who didn't even have a, mm -hmm. a speaking role, right? Uh, this is all a decision made by people in Europe on the assumption that the U.S. would just foot the bill militarily for this extraordinarily ambitious nation building agenda which we then got stuck with when it all started to go really bad in 2005, really. About May 2005 is when Afghanistan started to go super bad. Of course, by that point, we were so soaked up in Iraq that we didn't have the resources to respond, and that's on us. I mean, that's, that's a U.S. mistake. Um, but uh, in the time since then, we've adopted ex you know, a series of strategies to try to 
to deal with that. I think the strategy that President Obama adopted, which was the kind of um, the surge, right, the mm. could have worked. I think it had it suffered from two critical errors. One, we told the Taliban at the beginning of the surge exactly how long it was going to last. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I was in Kabul on the 2nd of December 2009 when President Obama gave his West Point speech and both announced the surge and talked about the date to withdraw. And at that time, it was July 2011 was the date that was being talked about as the withdrawal date. And I happened to be having dinner with two pro-Taliban leaders from Kandahar. I was working for General McChrystal at the time. And part of my job was to, you know, talk to people that might have been pro-Taliban. And these guys were laughing at us. They said, you know, people, we know people like you, but they're going to say, you might like the Americans, but they're leaving in July. What are you guys doing in August? Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. like, we're going to go out in the streets tomorrow. And we're going to say, we'll still be here when these guys go. And it's exactly what they did. And if you look at the Taliban strategy during the surge, they built their forces up in Pakistan. They did just enough in Afghanistan to keep themselves in the public eye. Uh, they did actually go through some internal disruption uh, in Afghanistan during that period. The Long War Journal covered this extraordinarily well at the time when a lot of other people were being overly optimistic. Um, but then once we pulled out in December of 2014, they came roaring back, right? I mean, nine months after we pulled out at the end of the surge in 2014, they succeeded in capturing the, cap- the, the capital of Kunduz province, Kunduz city, and holding it for two weeks, which had a dramatic morale effect on Afghans, right? Mm. One, because the cities now were suddenly less safe than they had been. Uh, you know, the cities had been pretty safe in the war up until that point. And now the Taliban were saying, no, we can put, you know, 1,500 guys in and take an entire uh, provincial capital when we choose to do so. The other reason is because uh, Kunduz was the first city to fall after the Russians left in 1989. So it sent a message to people that, you know, it's history's repeating itself. What's your take on the peace deal that's under theoretically, and I peace deal yeah. in quotes that's underway with the with the with, with the, the Taliban right now? And I and I say um, our guys at Long War Journal think it's just absolutely awful. I've argued that it's not good, but it may be the least bad you can expect in an election year from President yeah. Trump because it does leave eighty six hundred. Uh, troops in and it's condition based, not calendar based, and it's not good. But I, yeah. I he was not going to, you know, what else was he going to do in this year? And yeah. I can think of worse, worse options. Yeah, so I'm sort of somewhere between you and and uh, and Bill and those guys. Mm. Right? I mean, I think Bill um, Roju and Tom Jocelyn, yeah, Long yeah. War Journal. Yeah, know, yeah. read them. Great, read great. Yeah. everyone should read that. It's, yeah. it's it's really good, like objective reporting. Yeah. So I'm somewhere between you and you know Bill and Tom on this one. Uh, I think that it is probably politically about the best we would get, but I think on the ground, uh, it, it has some serious problems. Firstly, when I was meeting with the Taliban in 2009, and again in 2011 when I met with uh, these guys in Oslo as part of some inf- informal talks, their negotiating position then was identical to the position that's in the agreement now, right? They said, we will not um, have a relationship with al-Qaeda. We will not allow our territory to be used for an attack on any other territory. All foreigners out, and we will deal with the Afghan government, you know, after you guys leave, right? Well, that's basically the deal that we just agreed to. Mm. 100,000 civilian deaths and, you know, 
uh, a surge later, right? Mm -hmm. So we've what's happened is their position hasn't shifted, ours has shifted. Um, I think that, and I, I, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but I'm saying this as a professional military guy. As a practical military matter, we could keep doing what we're doing in Afghanistan forever, right? Mm -hmm. Like the coalition lost 24 people last year, which is, you know, it's tragic, right? And it, it's very terrible for their families and, of course, for the individuals concerned. But that was a week in Iraq at the height of the surge, right? I mean, as a practical matter, we could actually keep doing this. I'm pretty sure U US European Command lost more people in traffic accidents in the last couple of years than we've lost in, in Afghanistan, which again is in no way to diminish this, the sacrifice of those Absolutely. people, which is incredible. Uh, but what's problematic is, oh, and of course, if you think we spend a lot of money in Afghanistan, you obviously don't know what the US government spends on you know, everything, right? So it, actually, as a practical matter, we could keep doing this forever. And the example would be Korea, right? We've had 27,500 troops in Korea for about 50 years. And right? we have troops in Japan so and Japan, Germany and, and, and Italy. Right? And yeah. there's, no, there's no prima facie reason why just having troops overseas should be unsustainable. The problem we have in Afghanistan is that it's not sustainable for the Afghan government, right? So in the time since mm. the mm. end of the surge, the Afghan military's lost... They don't even release the numbers anymore, but somewhere north of 45,000 killed and injured. And that's just too many for them to sustain. It's a loss rate of about 12,000 a year, 1,000 a month. And most of that happens when this annual cycle runs, where you get a spring offensive by the Taliban, they capture some terrain, the Afghan government recaptures it by the end of the year, but they lose so many people in the process that it's unsustainable. So I think if we're going to focus on making Afghanistan sustainable, from a military standpoint, we really got to focus on reducing the Afghans' loss rate. And that involves aviation, building up the Afghan Air Force, intelligence support. And this is going to sound slightly counterintuitive, but making the Afghan special forces a little smaller, right? So in the book, I quote Roger Beaumont, who's a famous military psychologist, who, a uh, uh, sociologist, who said in the early 1970s in a book called Military Elites, that if you have an elite force that's too big, it becomes a brain drain on the rest of your force. So people that would be leaders in the ordinary units don't end up there. They end up in this elite force. And then you throw that elite force into high-risk operations so it loses more people. So you're actually selectively weeding out the good guys, uh, the, you know, the talent, and then spending it in these sort of fire brigade type operations. I do think we've seen some of that in Afghanistan, and I would like to see, you know, let's call them tweaks to the way we're operating with the Afghans on the ground. And I think that that's perfectly compatible with the strategy that President Trump's laying out, as long as we don't think that it automatically means we need to leave. I don't think there's any particular reason why we need to leave Afghanistan other than, you know, we're tired of it. It does appear, and maybe this is wrong, that it's been very difficult to train up a, a, a reliable and uh, an effective Afghan fighting force at the same time, while the Taliban seems to be passionate, somehow always getting funding, always getting weapons, always getting ammunitions, not getting war weary. I don't think the evidence suggests that most Afghans support the Taliban. I'm not sure they're terribly enthusiastic about the no, government, but they do want to vote and they do want to have a government. It's It does – I can understand why a lot of people say this is just – a lost cause. Well, a, the Taliban actually has pretty low political support in Af in Afghanistan. Most people would like to see the government s 
survive and prosper. They just don't necessarily believe that it will, right? Yeah. Um, so they're lacking in confidence. They're worried about the threat from the Taliban more than they actually like the Taliban. I think, look, it, it, we there are if again this gets back to this question of what is the proper role of professional military people. If we want to do a long-term strategy in Afghanistan, there are ways to do that that focus on sustaining the Afghans, reducing their loss rate, uh, recreating a focus on population and territory rather than taking the fight necessarily in, into Pakistan that the Afghans can do. But it's really a question of what the American people want to do. And as I argue in the book, I think that one reason why we're seeing a loss of patience by Americans in supporting this ongoing global role is that our military model hasn't been working very well for the last 20 years. Uh, and people can tell that, right? And so I think it's on military people to think about how do we make, how do we reinvent this model so that it, that it can work? Not so that we can go and occupy lots of places in, in perpetuity, but so that we recreate, uh, you know, a set of options for policymakers and the American people. And I, I talk about how the Western world, which we sort of take for granted, we don't always realize that it rests on two centuries of unbroken British, then American naval supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. And if your military model that underpins your democratic way of life doesn't work anymore, then you got two options, right? You can kiss that democratic way of life goodbye, or you can figure out a new military model, you know? All right, final question for today. On the last page of the book, you talk about the long twilight struggle ahead. Is that different from a forever war? It is because I don't think it's primarily war. I think we've really got to be focusing on domestic reconciliation, for want of a better term, uh, moving past this uh, incredibly hyper-partisan fragmentation of national life focusing on resiliency, you know, and the long twilight struggle that I'm referring to is not just against adversaries and, you know, snakes and, and dragons and all that. It's also against our own tendencies to, you know, question each other's motives and see partisan uh, insincerity where there's just maybe a sincere difference of opinion. You know, we've really got to, and I, this sounds trite, but it, it's actually going to require leadership, not necessarily leadership from the president, but leadership at the sort of community level for people to say, you know what, we, you know, there is, uh, there's a real risk here that not only will we be divided and, you know, some negative outcome might happen in the next presidential election. I mean, there's bigger fish to fry here, which is the sustainability of our entire civilization. And I think we've got to really uh, get to grips with that. There's a lot of other subjects I'd like to talk to you about, but we'll, we'll leave it for another day when you come to visit again. Until thanks, then, Cliff. thank you, David Kilcullen, yeah. for coming in to talk to me. And thanks to all of you for listening in here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.